this past week with my family in North Carolina, as some of you know. And my older sister is someone I admire, respect, and love dearly. And I also love her two teenage sons, my nephews. I would describe the younger one as bright, spirited, impulsive, and passionate from birth. His initial response to any request is often one of resistance and frustration. His default mode is to push back. It's just the way that he's wired. My sister and brother-in-law have spent a lot of time learning how to best parent this son. What they've been taught is that when they ask my nephew to do something, knowing that his first response is likely to be one of resistance, they may need to wait and take his second answer, or sometimes even his third or fourth answer. Now, my parents bring their own ideas about parenting to the situation, and it's hard for them to understand my sister's approach to my nephew's resistance. Perhaps it seems too passive to them. And truth be told, not many of us do well in situations that are rife with tension. We tend to want to either confront the source of tension and overcome it by force, or we want to run from it. But my sister has learned to do neither. Instead, she has learned another way, and she explained it to my parents like this. I know it looks to you like I'm giving up my power because I'm not forcing him to behave a certain way, and I realize that it might be hard for you to watch and that you may need to leave the room. That's fine, but I want you to understand what's really going on inside me. The child in me does get upset, and she wants to either yell back or run away. But I tell that little girl and me to go ahead, run and play, and that everything will be okay. I tell her that the adult in me can handle this. Then I stand there calmly, responding not out of ego or fear, but out of a place of help and strength. See, she said, what I've come to realize is that when I respond gently and with compassion, not running from the conflict at hand, and yet not returning the anger that's directed at me either, then that's a response that is actually rooted in power, not in weakness. As I heard her say these words, it dawned on me that she was describing what some people call the third way, or true power, or even more simply, the way of the cross. Today is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in our church calendar. Today we celebrate Christ as Lord of the entire cosmos, of all that is, and we look forward to the day when the kingdom of heaven will come in all its fullness. To be honest, it's an uncomfortable feast day for many progressive Christians. How does this celebration fit in a world where most societies are becoming increasingly pluralistic? Can we celebrate Christ as king of all without seeming to devalue or dismiss other religions? When we talk of Christ as Lord over all that is, are we as Christians not participating in the very type of domination that Christ sought to overcome? The truth is that some of us may find this day in the liturgical year to be uncomfortable, outdated, or even imperialistic. But then we come to our gospel reading. It's the crucifixion story as told in the gospel of Luke. Jesus is crucified at a place called the skull. One criminal is crucified on his right, and one on his left. 
His clothes have been taken away from him, and some people are casting lots to decide who gets them. This is the king of the Jews is written above him on the cross where he hangs. And the soldiers mock him, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Even one of the criminals joins in. A sneer on his face as he says, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But then the other criminal defends Jesus by admitting that while the two criminals are getting what they deserve, Jesus has done nothing wrong. That criminal turns to Jesus and makes a request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so Jesus hangs between these two criminals, one who mocks him and one who places himself in Jesus' care, one who turns away from Jesus and one who turns toward him. It's a metaphor for Jesus' life. It's a metaphor for all human life. And it's a metaphor for salvation. And so let me explain. See, the incarnation is all about hanging in the middle. It's about breaking down all the binaries of our world, all of the categories and the divisions, between spirit and flesh, between divine and human, between the pure and the impure, between individual and community between light and darkness, between faith and reason, between broken and whole, between good criminals and bad criminals. We live in a world of tensions and contradictions. And so basically we have three options. One, we can flee from the messiness of those contradictions. Two, we can take sides and fight against them. Or three, we can simply hold the tension in our heart until we and the world around us are transformed. The cross-shaped or cruciform life is this third way, a way that holds the tension of life's contradictions and conflicts without fleeing or fighting, and it is a hard thing to do. In his book, Hope Against Darkness, Richard Rohr describes those who flee from the messy contradictions of life as Pharisees. They hide behind rules and order and judgment instead of practicing compassion and dialogue. Because compassion and dialogue might lead to inclusivity, uncertainty, and the breakdown of the pure, impure dichotomy. And that kind of blurring of dichotomies can be scary. Better to go with the fundamentalism of a clean, cut-and-dried approach, leaving behind all the messiness that comes with living in the middle. On the other hand... There are those who experience the contradictions and tensions of our world and respond by fighting. Rohr calls these people zealots. Zealots see all the opposing views, values, and claims of this world. They look at all this messiness and try to pinpoint where within it all evil resides. And when they find it, they feel justified and even righteous in fighting it, controlling it, reforming it. Now, zealots may be right in their judgments, and they may be right and prophetic in their positions on social justice issues. But here's the thing. In their hatred of the unjust and in their self-righteous certainty, zealots often become the very hate and coercive power that they fight against. They become the next cog in the wheel of pain, oppression, and alienation. But then there is the third way. 
We see it in Jesus' life and in his death on the cross. Jesus recognized all the contradictions, complexities, imperfections, and pain of human life, but he didn't run from them. He didn't pretend that they weren't there or that with the right magic wand he could make everything perfect. Instead, he dove right into all the messiness. He ate with tax collectors and cheats, touched lepers with his own hands, spoke with demons, broke the letter of the law in order to uphold its spirit, was pulled between his family and his mission, was betrayed by his friends, and felt cold steel go through his flesh. He didn't run from the grittiness of life. And yet Jesus also didn't perpetuate the pain, suffering, and violence that he experienced in the world. He responded to evil, domination, and violence with goodness, inclusivity, and love. Jesus refused to become the very things that he sought to overcome. Even hanging on the cross, he experienced violence without returning it, without releasing it back into the world. What we see in Jesus is that God's power is never separated from God's love for us, from God's desire for us, from God's mercy extended to us, or from God's compassion poured out for us. The power of the cross is perfect power. It is power and vulnerability, and it is the third way. To the outside world, this response may seem passive, but trust me, there's nothing weak or inadequate or unconvincing about it. All those who have ever truly changed the world for better have chosen this third way. Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela. And yes, there is a cost that comes with it. But to go to the places of our world in which we find pain, suffering, oppression, and violence, and to respond to what we find there in such a way that we don't transmit the very thing that we're fighting against, that is the only kind of power that can actually transform the world. It's a good thing to remember on Christ the King Sunday, on the day when we celebrate God's glorious power as it is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The cross teaches us that every time we respond to evil and violence and brokenness without returning it, the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, happens right here, right now. The invisible God is made visible. And God is at work reconciling all things to God's self through the perfect power that is love.